Welcome back to Tequila She Wrote, a podcast about cocktails and true crime. I'm Sloan, your bartender for today. And I'm Trish, your crime tender. And today we are going across the world to Australia. I believe this is our first trip to Australia on this podcast, so I'm pretty excited that we are leaving this wonderful country <laughs> that we live in. Um, and th- But anyways, this is the case of the Snowtown Murders. I've never heard of this one, so let's get into it. Welcome back to another round of bartending with Sloan. Today we are attempting to clean out our liquor closet. <laughs> it's we've got a massive um, inventory for the space that we have, so we just pretty much went through the cabinets trying to figure out what we have on hand that we can make. So I am making a revised version of the mango habanero margarita. This one is definitely going to be more of your, like, flavor profile if you're not as into the spicy. So what I did was I took 1.25 ounces of the mango habanero whiskey. And then I did 0.75 of Malibu mango rum. You could really just use any rum. We just, we have the mango and it's a little bit sweeter. And so to that, I also added mango juice, and I just get that like on our at the Latino Latina aisle at Walmart. The ones that are around us, they have it in can and a box, and we have been buying it pretty much every week that we go to the grocery store. For it's more economical for us to get the box now, <laughs> and it's just so good. There's one store near us that has peach and guava and strawberry banana and a lot of different options. So. If you can find that sort of thing, we'll have a picture of the like specific brand on our profiles and whatnot. But just mango juice, really any citrus juice that you can find. The last time we did orange juice, I just think the mango complements the mango whiskey. Imagine that. And then I also, so I did about two to three ounces of the mango juice. And then I did about two ounces of just margarita mix. Shake it. Serve it with a sugar rim or a tahine rim, whatever you prefer. I am on a tahine kick, as you probably have noticed. So I did a tahine rim. But this one's delicious. It's definitely sweeter. Uh, The first round that I did of this, it was the, isn't it Old Smokey's whiskey? Yes. I believe it's Old Smokey. Um, But it was their recipe that they made to go with the whiskey. And it's really, really good. Just if you're not a big fan of spice, it the spice stuck with you with that margarita. This one's a lot more sweet and easy to digest for the like more simple palate. I love a good spice, but sometimes I can't just sip on spice for yeah. hours on end. So this is a nice alternative. But hope you enjoy this one. If you do try it, let us know. We'd love to hear what you think. We'll have it posted on our socials eventually. And we'll kick you off to the episode. All right, so today's case, like we said, is the Snowtown Murders case. 
is our first case out of Australia. I was just kind of looking for something to cover this week. And I was like, I think I typed in like foreign um, cases just because I was like, let's step outside the U.S. We all know that the U.S. is fucked up, but there's other places that are fucked up too. <laughs> and Snowtown Murders actually popped up and I was like, oh, this is in Australia. My sister, my oldest sister, lives in Australia. I was like, let's see what this is. And as I got into it, I was like, I don't think I've ever heard this. And this is, this is kind of known as one of the most notorious, like, serial killers for Australia. Mm-hmm. So, I was very interested. But, as I said, Snowtown is located in Australia. It is actually located in South Australia, near Adelaide. My sister lives kind of around Sydney, so not too familiar with Australia, so I'm not sure how close that is to her, but I do know I've heard of Adelaide. On May 20th, 1999, so that's really not that long ago. I still think the 90s were five, <laughs> 10 years ago. I'm 31 years old, born in the 90s, but if you ask me how long ago the 90s were, it was last decade. I don't care. You can't convince me otherwise. Yeah. It, it just feels like it was literally like just a couple years ago that we were in the 90s. But no. No. Yes. My youngest brother wasn't even born yet. He was born in 2001. So for me to think that the 90s like, <laughs> were just a little while ago is absolutely ridiculous. I'm aware. <laughs> I have a brother who is 21 years old. And he was born in the 2000s. I mean, I felt that because I have a nephew that is 21 and he <laughs> is getting married. And I'm like, no, no, you're you're still five. <laughs> yep. Uh, but anyways, on May 20th, 1999, police discovered a horrific scene. They came across six plastic barrels in a disused bank vault that contained the remains of eight victims. Of all the bodies found in the barrels, only one was actually killed in Snowtown. Motivation for the murders were unknown at the time, but police did discover who the perpetrators were. They were none other than John Justin Bunting, Robert Joe Wagner, and James, he has two very strange names, so I'm going to do my best in pronouncing these. <laughs> Throughout the thing, I, I just call him James because I was not about to try to re-go over this. But the last one was James Spryden Vel- Velasquez, I think is how it's said. But... All you have to know is Bunting was, like, the main leader here. And he is what they consider their most, like, notorious serial killer. So, like I said, the killers were led to believe by Bunting that the 
victims were pedophiles, homosexuals, or just, like, weak individuals. Yeah, some victims' murders were preceded by torture, and efforts were made to appropriate victims' identities, social security payments, and bank accounts. So, it wasn't bad enough that they killed them. Sometimes they torture them, and then, you know, if that wasn't enough, after they were dead, they were like, oh, let's just get some money out of you. So, how did all these bodies get buried without noticing? It's kind of, like, smart on the killer's part, but also, like, it's kind of disturbing to think that, like, this many people can go missing without being noticed. Yeah. Raising a red flag. Right? The investigation started back in 1994 when the body of Clinton Therese, I think that's how you say the last name, was found at Lower Light, another small township in South Australia. At the time of the discovery, there was no connection to Bunting. Another case that would later connect to Bunting is the murder of Thomas Trevelyan. In 1997, Thomas's death was originally thought to be a suicide, but what finally led police to, to the Snowtown murders was the investigation of Elizabeth Hayden, who she, like, went, like, disappeared. And then we have May 20th when, and 99, when the barrels were finally discovered. So, it's believed that the bodies were held in multiple locations around southern Australia before they ended up in Snowtown. Which, I mean, that's some dedication if you're just picking up these barrels and moving them with you. But Barrels are not light. Yeah, they're not light, especially when they contain uh, human remains. Yes. So, Prost... Yeah, prosecutors believed the bodies were moved because the killers became aware of the ongoing police investigation. While searching Button's Adelaide home, two more bodies were found buried in the backyard. On May 21, 1999, Bunting, Wagner, and Mark Hayden were arrested for the murders, and so was... Um, James eventually, but that wasn't until May 26 when he was arrested. At the time of the arrest, James was actually living in Bunting's home. So, I want to take some time to talk about uh, John Bunting because, like I said, he's our main, like, protagonist in this case. <laughs> he's our main guy that Australia kind of focused on because he was like the whole manipulator in this whole thing. So as I said, Bunting was driven by his hatred for pedophiles and homosexuals. He was a skilled manipulator of people and is no like I said, is known as Australia's worst serial killer. Bunting was the ringleader of his gang and one article put it his degenerate subculture of murders of these people that he already knew. Like, they weren't just random people. It's people that he knew. And as I start going through, like, the list of his victims, 
and like kind of st- you're gonna be like you did not want to be like friends with this guy at all <laughs> so the murders led police on the longest and most expensive investigation and the same goes for the criminal trials in like south australian history in Bunting's home on a wall in his spare room was a chart made using paper, like paper notes and wool. And it formed like an interconnecting webs of names of people he believed to be pedophiles or homosexuals. So like the picture I get in my mind is from Always Sunny in Philadelphia with um what's his name with like the the like wine yeah. chart. Yeah. Where he's like, <gasps> Yes, I can't think of his name. I see his face. Yes, but like, it's that famous meme yeah. of like, what's his name? Just like losing his shit, like pointing at the wall. And it's just like this scattered thing. Like, that's kind of what I picture when like they were talking about this. Especially because what Bunting did with these names on the wall was that he would just randomly pick one and call them and he would accuse them of being pedophiles and tell them they would get what was coming to them. So now on to his group of murderers, starting with James Velasquez. So Bunting was actually married to James's mother, Elizabeth Harvey, which the fact that he's married and like, just like, what I've learned about him, I'm like, was he just really good at hiding this? Or is this woman, like, also kind of, like, kind of, like, prejudiced yeah. in that? <laughs> like, I don't understand. But Bunting spent a lot of time with James and kind of assumed the father figure role. Bunting was vocal to James about his dislike of pedophiles and homosexuals, and eventually James felt comfortable enough to kind of confess to Bunting that his stepbrother, Troy Udy, I think is how you say the last name, had molested him at the age of 13. So Bunting just suggested that Troy should be bashed. Because... I mean, I get it, but also, like, you immediately jump to violence. So at the criminal trials, James would, like, eventually give up evidence against Bunting, Wagner, and Hayden. So, like, he's kind of like that weak one that just kind of caved, like, all right, I confess. (laughs) But, you know, they, they did this, and they did this, and this, and, like... You'll see as I go over this that, like, really, James was kind of the least involved in all this. So, like, I can see why he was like, look, yeah, sure, I did it, but I'm not as bad as these guys. Sadly, his mom and Bunting's wife would eventually die of cancer, which is very sad to think, like, I'm sure he was going through some stuff. And then, like, for me, my mom's, like, one of my best friends. So, like, the fact that, like, 
you're probably thinking like you have at least your mom in your corner and that and then she like just passes away from cancer now as for the relationship of robert wagner to bunting it this is where it gets a little more like you see the manipulation side so Wagner met Bunting when he moved to Waterloo Corner Road, which is where um, one of Bunting's residence was located. And Wagner lived with Barry Lane, which remember that name because it comes up later. And at the time, both men helped Bunting dispose of the body of the first victim, Clinton Therese. And Wagner would go on to assist him with the remaining 10 murders. Bunting's spree of murders began in August 1992 with the murder of Clinton Therese, age 22. So, what happened here was that Bunting had invited Clinton inside and then he bashed him to death in the living room with a shovel. Violent. Yes. Bunting accused him of being a pedophile and referred to Clinton after his murder as happy pants. So two years after his murder on August 16, 1994, Clinton was found buried in a shallow grave at Lower Light, South Australia. Clinton's murder remained unsolved for quite some time, and in 1997, he was featured on two episodes of Australia's Most Wanted, of which Bunting actually watched an episode with James and his mother and boasted to James, that's my handiwork. So clearly he's remorseful, right? Sounds like it. (laughs) He revealed that he had killed Clinton when he lived at Waterloo Corner Road and disposed of his body with the help of Wagner and Lane. It took another three years for Bunting to claim another victim, and this victim would be Ray Davies. So, Ray was a disabled man who was described as, like, intellectual... He lived in a caravan behind the house of Suzanne Allen in Salisbury North. Ray and Suzanne had a relationship, and Ray became a target after she accused him of making sexual advances to her grandson. In December 1995, Ray was murdered by Bunting and Wagner, and he was never reported missing. Bunting and Wagner were later seen cleaning the caravan. They then moved it to a house in nearby Elizabeth, where they painted it and sold it two months after Ray's murder. To top it all off, Bunting continued to collect Ray's welfare payments, and Ray's body was later recovered by police, buried in the backyard of Bunting's former home in Waterloo Corner Road, uh, Salisbury North. The next victim was Michael Gardiner, I think is how it's said. 
Michael was an openly gay man that Bunting and Wagner killed in August of 97. Robert Wagner didn't like that Michael was openly gay. And after killing Michael, Bunting had Frederick Brooks call Michael's friends and impersonate him. He demanded some items, including his wallet, saying it was for identification purposes. But really, Bunting just wanted to gain access to Michael's personal funds. His body was found in one of the six barrels in Snowtown. And it was actually located in the same barrel as our next victim. And there's going to be a few parts I'm going to be like, if you, if you don't want all the gruesome details, you might want to skip ahead a couple of seconds. And this is definitely one of them. So, like I said, you just want to probably press like the little 15 second like fast forward. <laughs> so, on a gruesome note, it is pointed out in this article that I found that... <laughs> One of Michael's feet had been cut off so that the lid of the drum could be closed. You know, you gotta be really efficient with that packing. <laughs> right? I was like, oh god. But there's a few cases of, like, them doing stuff like this so that they could fit these people. And I'm like, oh. Uh, so, like I said, our next victim was found in the same barrel as, um, yeah, Michael. I was like, why am I, why am I forgetting his name? Michael. And our next victim is none other than Barry Lane. So, Barry was another openly gay man and a crossdresser. And an interesting note, Mr. I don't like um, the fact that Michael was openly gay and all this. Uh, Barry and Robert were actually in a relationship. He was in a relationship with Barry from 1985 until 1996. Oh! So for 11 years, he was in a relationship with this man. That's not... That's more than a relationship at that point. Right? We we call that common law marriage around here. Yeah. The pair shared a house in Bingham Road, Salisbury North, near the home of Bunting. Barry and Robert's relationship began when Robert was 13. So, I mean, maybe there's a mix of, like, grooming or whatnot, but also, like, dude. <laughs> So, Barry was last seen alive in October of 1997. Bunting referred to Barry as being dirty and a pedophile. On the day of his murder, he was forced to call his mother and tell her he was moving to Queensland and wanted nothing further to do with her. Bunting also learned that Barry was telling people about the murder of Clinton Therese in which Lane helped to conceal Clinton's body. After Barry's death, Bunting took Barry's car and claimed his welfare payments. 
So, again, like I said, he, it just goes to prove that he's just one of those people that uh, you don't really want to know. And if you do, you just kind of want to keep your head down and just act like you don't know shit of what's going on. So, our next victim is Thomas Trevelyan. He was also involved with the murder of Barry. And kind of first to finish off kind of Barry's murder, it's believed that Bunting associated with Barry to gain further information into the pedophiles of the area. Because, you know, those gay men just know all the pedophiles. Yeah. Uh, small thinking. Small-minded thinking. Um, this is another part that if you don't like gory details, you might want to fast forward a little bit. So, Barry's body was actually dismembered to be put in the drum with Michael Gardner. So, not only was Michael's foot cut off, but Barry was just, like, fully dismembered. It's like he's having more fun with it as he goes, and that's disgusting. Yep. So, like I said, our next victim is Thomas Trevelyan, who was described as having psychiatric problems and was known for only wearing army-style clothing. He would often run outside with a knife when he heard unfamiliar noises. So, to me, that sounds like some PTSD shit. (laughs) Like... Clearly, something has triggered him to do this. He would also walk long distances regularly, like, just take off and just no real destination in sight, just walk. He shared a house with Barry Lane for five months from April to October of 1997. Thomas did assist in the murder of Barry and was later killed by Bunting for telling others of his involvement in Barry's death. So, like I said, if you if you happen to know this Bunting guy, you just you didn't want to say anything because chances were you were going to end up a victim. Bunting told the others that Thomas started to fuck up and go mental, and that he was a risk. So, he's trying to basically justify his actions. Thomas was driven to Kirkusbrook in Adelaide Hills by Bunting and Wagner. He was forced to stand on a box with a noose fastened around his neck, and the box was kicked out from under him. Thomas's body was found on November 5th, 1997, and his death was originally ruled a suicide. Our next victim was Gavin Porter, who was age 31, and he was a friend of James's from Victoria. He moved into the house shared by Bunting and James in 1998, and Gavin was a heroin addict and Bunting said he was a waste who no longer deserved to live. So he's one of those ones that was just considered weak. 
So instead of, you know, helping him out, having him get help, whatnot, let's just kill him. Bunting became angry after he was pricked by a used syringe discarded by Gavin on the sofa. Gavin was murdered in his car while sleeping in Bunting's driveway after working on his car. His body, too, was found in one of the barrels that was eventually found in Snowtown. Our next victim was good old Troy Ude, who was the half-brother James. He's the one that James claims molested him when he was, I think, 13 is what I said. August 1998, Bunting, Wagner, um... James and Mark Hayden visited Troy. Bunting, Wagner, and James drug him from his bed and murdered him. His body was dismembered and stored in a barrel. Frederick Brooks was yet another victim. And remember, he's the one that was had to call, um, I think it was Michael's friends and that, and ask for like the wallet and whatnot. He was an intellectual disabled son of Jody Elliott and nephew of Elizabeth Hayden, Mark's wife. On September 17th, 1998, he was murdered by Bunting, Wagner, and James. His body was moved to a car that was picked up later by Mark Hayden and then later found in the bank vault in Snowtown. Mark Hayden continued to access Frederick's welfare payments. Gary O'Dwyer, age 29, is our next victim. He was also an intellectually disabled man who lived alone in Francis Street, Murray Bridge, He became disabled by a car accident early on in his life. And Bunting had James learn personal information about Gary and if he had any family. So he wanted to know, basically, was anybody going to miss him? Is anybody going to be looking for you? Right. So, yeah. James basically stalked Gary to get whatever information he could and see... If anybody would really miss him, all that. So, Gary was eventually seen as an easy target by Bunting and was killed so Bunting could access his welfare payments. His body was found in Snowtown. And this is the first one, really, that kind of showed the torture marks. Because it contained burn marks from a machine used to apply electric shocks. So if you're getting burned by that, that means it's up very high. Yeah. Or it's just repeatedly in one spot. Yeah. True. I didn't think of it that way. Yeah. Clearly. Our next victim is the only female victim, at least that we know of. And that is Elizabeth Hayden, who was the wife of Mark Hayden. 
and the sister of Jody Elliott, who had a brief relationship with Bunting in 1998. Elizabeth was Bunting's second to last murder. She is the only female victim, like I said, that we know of, but they're pretty sure they have all of his victims. She was murdered on November 20th, 1998, while Mark and Jody were away from the house. Elizabeth was reported missing. Who, who do you think she would be reported missing by? Who would you hope? I would hope your family or your friends. You would hope, like, the husband or, like... That would be family. Would, like, would. Her brother. Her brother. Garen Sinclair finally reported her missing to police at 3 p.m. the following day. I'm just saying, how long do you think it would take Nate to notice? <laughs> Depends on how into his game he was. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but I could absolutely see Trish being the one to report me missing. <laughs> Only because I'm tracking you. <laughs> yes, that too. That too. <laughs> there are a lot of reasons why. Nate can track my car, but Trish can track my phone. Yep. <laughs> and that's a lot more accurate as to where I am. Uh, but yes. So her brother was the one that finally reported her missing, but not until 3 p.m. the next day. And here's the, the real kicker that makes Mark just such an upstanding guy. He later helped conceal his wife's murder. Police inquiries into Elizabeth's disappearance led police to the vault containing the barrels of the bodies of eight of Bunting's victims, including Elizabeth's. And this, like I said, this is what kind of led to the arrest of Bunting, Wagner, James, and Hayden. But before they were found out and everything. There was one more victim that Bunting and his gang, gang, his gang, killed, and that was David Johnson. David was lured to the disused bank in Snowtown by his stepbrother James on May 9th, nineteen ninety nine. David was not homosexual, but Bunting often referred to him as such and said he needed to die. James had told David of a computer for sale near Clare, South Australia, and he was driven down to Snowtown to look at the computer. Shortly after entering the bank, he was grabbed by Wagner around the throat and strangled. Wagner then handcuffed David, and Bunting forced him to read a script he had earlier prepared, and he was forced to give up his bank account pin. David's voice was recorded on a computer equipped with a microphone. Wagner and James then drove to Port Wakefield and attempted to access David's bank account, which they were unsuccessful in doing, and when they returned to Snowtown, David was already dead. Bunting and Wagner dismembered his body, then fried a 
and ate part of his flesh. Yuck. Okay, (laughs) so I always make a joke about fried foods that if you would fry my hand, I'd gnaw it off my body. But it's just a fucking joke. Right? And like, oh, is it, was it Ed, was it Ed Gein that? Ed Gein or Ed, Ed Kemper? It's one of them. I want to say that like ate the nipples. We all know that Jeffrey Dahmer did. And he said oh, that sure. um, like human flesh, you know, tasted somewhat sweet and whatnot but Jeffrey Dahmer is the one that got me into all this (laughs) so you can bet your sweet ass I'm covering it at some point yeah but like if I start talking about Jeffrey Dahmer right now this is going to turn into the Jeffrey Dahmer (laughs) but like keep it moving (laughs) this isn't the first case of someone like but like no, and sometimes you have it's to do it like, for survival. Like, there there are a lot of historical instances of this, and I just hope that I'm never in the situation to have to know whether or not I would actually follow through. Yeah, and it's just, like, every time I hear someone eating, like, so I'm always like, oh, and then, like, there you'll see, like, articles where, like, if you're researching it, they'll be like, I mean, it doesn't taste bad. It tastes kind of like chicken like pork but a little sweet and i'm like i don't eat chicken (laughs) sounds like i don't know what chicken tastes like no i do you do but you don't don't like like it it. (laughs) i don't eat chicken i don't eat alligator i don't eat deer but yeah it's just good luck getting me to eat human yeah so david like i said david was their final victim now, when police and en- like encountered the scene in the bank in Snowtown, it was described as a scene from the worst nightmare you've ever had. The building was layered with tools used to murder and torture the victims. These items included knives, a blood-stained saw, a double-barrel shotgun, coils of rope rolls of tape, rubber gloves, cloths, and I'm probably going to say this wrong, but a bariatric metallurgy tool used to give electric shocks to the genitals and other sensitive parts of a victim's body. If you got the right group of people, that would not be a punishment. (laughs) But. But. Yeah. It, I was just like, oh. So, a pathologist later reported that it was revealed that prolonged torture had taken place using everyday tools that were also found in the vault. The victims were forced to call their torturers God, Master, Chief Inspector, and Lord Sir. Sounds like somebody has a praise kink. <laughs> we're not here to shame <laughs> no but when you turn when you turn murderers that's when they're shame you yes true just clarifying here we ain't here to shame but like if you want to turn murderers i'm gonna shame you <laughs> um so i'll spare you the details that 
we know of Ray Davies and Frederick Brooks torture because when I read them, I was just like, oh no, no, because they're absolutely horrific. <laughs> like, I was like, I can't, I can't, I know, I know this is the murder podcast and we talked about some fucked up shit, but this was like, I was like, I would have to put a warning and be like, look, if you can't, if you can't deal with graphic shit, just skip this episode. And I didn't want to do that. So now, finally, on to our criminal trial where Bunting and Robert Wagner were tried together, as I feel like they should, because they were basically involved in every single murder. So, James was the first to be sentenced. He was given four life sentences on June 21st, 2001, after he pled guilty to four murders. Later that summer, Bunting, Hayden, and Wagner each pled not guilty to ten counts of murder. Most of the charges against Hayden were dropped due to lack of evidence, but the trial for Bunting and Wagner began on October 14, 2002, and almost right away they experienced difficulties with the jury because the jury had to listen to all this horrific evidence and everything, the stuff I <laughs> spared you from for the most part. And some reports say that maybe up to three jurors withdrew for this reason. Can't say I blame them. Right? Not that I would do the same, but can't say I blame them. On September 8th, 2003, Bunting was found guilty and convicted of 11 counts of murder. He is known as Australia's most prolific serial killer. Wagner also was convicted on September 8th. He was convicted of seven murders while only pleading guilty to three. Both Bunting and Wagner appealed their convictions. It didn't go anywhere. They were sentenced to life imprisonment imprisonment on each count to be served consecutively. Cumulatively, I think is what they said. Basically, like, basically, they're never getting out. (laughs) The judge said they were in the business of killing for pleasure and were incapable of true rehabilitation, which completely agree. Hayden's trial continued into 2004. On December 19th, after four days of deliberations, he was convicted of five counts of assisting in the crimes and reached no verdict on the two counts of murder and one other count of assistance. In September 2005, the murder charges against Hayden were dropped and, like, this was in return for guilty pleas to two new charges of assisting in the killings of his wife, Elizabeth Hayden, and Troy Ute. The charge of assisting in the murder of David Johnson was dropped. Which, you remember, he was with James trying to access the bank account. So, if you go off of what, like, we supposedly know... He wasn't there when David was murdered. So, 
We all remember Suzanne Allen, Ray Davies' uh, lover. If you're like me, you kind of wondered whatever happened to her. Like, she was, you're like, she was involved. Like, what happened there? Well, Suzanne was actually found buried at Bunting's home at Salisbury North. Her body was wrapped in 11 different plastic bags. Her death was concealed and they had continued to collect her pension. They were able to claim $17,000. That's more than what a lot of these dumbasses settle for, but Yeah, I'm just like, ugh. Bunting and his group claimed she had died of a heart attack and murder charges for her death were dropped due to lack of evidence. So, like, we don't know if she was murdered or if, like they said, she died of natural causes and they just kind of took advantage of it. But still, I was like, it's a little fishy. It's a little fishy. The community of Snowtown was affected by all this, obviously. Like, you would think that with all these murderers, people would just kind of, like, keep away for the most part but it brought in a lot of tourism people wanting to see the town that this was all scary and they wanted to try to you know see this bank vault and that for themselves and the people of snowtown and like the authorities were not like pleased at all with the stigma that was now attached to their town and they actually considered changing the name I don't think it was ever changed, but they did really consider it for a while. So the house that Bunting had in Salisbury North, basically the ownership got turned over to the South Australian Housing Trust and it got demolished. And today it actually has units on it for older people, (laughs) which... I just feel like that has um, some bad juju (laughs) mixed with more bad juju because it's for older people. Obviously, you're probably going to pass away there. So that's just like death on top of death. Hopefully, their spirits are ready to move on. Right. There is a film titled Snowtown that was released in Australia on May 19th, 2001 in regards to the life of John Bunting. And there's also some books and that about the murders. I haven't read or like seen any of them, but if you are interested, I'm sure you can find some stuff. But that is basically the case like i said if you do kind of research on your own just be aware that there's some very gruesome things i left out and um that that's about as much of a warning i'm gonna give you because if i try to talk about it, i'm gonna <laughs> reveal some things that like i said it i was like nope nope we're not putting that in here well that was an interesting case like i said i had never heard anybody cover it and it came up and I was just like oh a couple murders in a town and I got into it and I was just like well shit 
I do have to say that I think my case is better for this episode. <laughs> that I'm doing for the last call. And that's because we're going to talk about the Great Emu War of oh, Australia. <laughs> so, I'm sure yours is more comical. <laughs> it very much is. Yeah. So if you need a laugh after that horrible case, please hang around for the last call to listen about the Great Emu War <laughs> that Australia lost. <laughs> oh, I'm excited. But, but that being said, we'll kick you off to the last call. <laughs> Welcome back to another Last Call with Sloan. Like I said, we are going to be talking about the Great Emu War of Australia. I listened to this, I want to say maybe Morbid did a full out case for this. And I kind of wanted to save this as like an April Fool's sort of like, <laughs> you know, funny sort of thing. But Trish told me we were going to Australia today. And I was like, this is the perfect opportunity to use this. And then uh, that was a depressing as fuck story. So I'm really glad that I'm using this as the last call. Sorry. <laughs> it's all right. It's all right. It's all right. That's kind of what true crime is about. Oh, it's a murder podcast. There's not many uplifting. <laughs> yeah, it is what it is. So anyways, after World War I, the Australian government gave land to many ex-soldiers from Australia and some from Great Britain. The government gave these settlers land to farm in Western Australia. Much of the land was not very good, and when the Great Depression hit Australia in 1929, the government told these farmers to grow more wheat. The government promised to help by giving money to farmers, but the farmers did not get the money, and wheat was coming worth less and less money. And by October 1932, there were big problems in Western Australia. The farmers were ready to harvest the season's crop, but they also made threats. They said they might not deliver the wheat. Farmers' live and work, lives and work became even worse when about 20,000 emus arrived. Emus regularly migrate after breeding each year. They returned to the coast from inland areas, and Western Australian farmers had cleared more land and made water supplies for their livestock and crops better. The emus went to the settlers' farms, and they were good places for the emu to live. <laughs> The emus began to move into the farms, and many moved into the farms around Chandler and Walgulin. The emus ate and ruined the crops. They also made large holes and fences where rabbits could enter and cause more problems. Farmers complained to the government about the birds destroying the crops, and a group of veteran settled farmers went to meet with the Minister of Defense. The settler farmers had been soldiers in World War I, and they knew that machine guns were powerful. They asked the government to send machine guns. The minister agreed, but he wanted the soldiers to use the guns, not the settler farmers. The Western Australian government would pay to transport the soldiers, and the farmers would give them food and places to live. Like, what fucking bullshit? I was good enough to save this country in World War I, but I'm not good enough to save my own property, and you want me to pay out of my ass again to help save my own property. Pretty much, yeah. <sighs> Uh, the farmers would also pay for the bullets. Once again, bullshit. <laughs> the government also wanted to send the guns because the birds would be good target practice for the soldiers. So maybe the government should be paying for the food and bullets. Just a thought. Just maybe. Some in the government may have thought the military operation was a good way to be seen helping the Western Australian farmers. They wanted to stop the secession movement that was starting. So... 
The military began to fight the birds in October 1932. The quote-unquote war was conducted under the command of Major GPW Meredith of the 7th Heavy Battery of the Royal Australian Artillery. So this is like a legit fucking war, guys. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) All because the government did not want to let the farmers (laughs) save their own land. But the Royal Australian Artillery arrived with Meredith Commanding Soldiers Sergeant S. McMurray and Gunner J. O. O. Halloran, Halloran, armed with two Lewis guns and 10,000 rounds of ammunition. The operation was delayed by rain that caused the emus to spread out all over a wider area. The rain finally stopped on November 2nd, 1932, so then the troops were sent with orders to help the farmers. A newspaper reported that soldiers were told to collect 100 emu skins. Feathers from the skins could be used to make hats for light horsemen. So the first try... And yes, there is a first try. On November 2nd, the men traveled to Campion, where they saw about 50 emus. The birds were too far from the guns, so the local settlers tried to herd the emus into an ambush. This failed, and the birds split into small groups and ran, so it was difficult to shoot them. But while the first shots from the machine guns did not hurt the emus because they were far away, a second round of gunfire killed, quote, a number, end quote, of birds. Later the same day, settlers found a small flock and killed about a dozen birds. Next, on November 4th, Meredith prepared an ambush near a local dam. They saw more than 1,000 emus heading toward Meredith and his soldiers. This time, the gunners waited until the birds were very close, and then they started to fire their guns. The guns jammed after only 12 birds were killed, and the surviving birds ran away before any more could be shot. Meredith and the soldiers did not see any more birds that day. After losing the Battle of the Dam, Meredith moved further south because he heard the birds were fairly tame. But again, he had only limited success even though he and his men tried very hard to kill more emus. By the fourth day of the campaign, army observers reported that birds looked well organized. Each pack seemed to have its own leader now, a big black-plumed bird which stands fully six feet high and keeps watch while his mates carry out their work of destruction and warns them of our approach. Meredith was desperate. He even tried to put one of the guns on a truck. This failed because the truck was slower than the emus. (laughs) The, The ride was so rough that the gunner could not fire any shots. And by November 8th, six days after the first fighting, the army had fired 2,500 bullets. Nobody knows how many birds were killed. One estimate was only 50 birds from 2,500 bullets. Others said from 200 to 500 birds. Out of like 10,000, though. I just love that the emus were like, no, fuck this. (laughs) Started their own army. (laughs) They even had their own little leaders. (laughs) (laughs) They're smarter than the humans. (laughs) (laughs) It kills me, but I love it. Lesson learned. Do not take on emus. Right? Uh, So Meredith's official report said that none of his men were injured. On November 8th, members of the Australian House of Representatives discussed the operation. Following the negative coverage of the events in the local media, they included claims that only a few emus had died, and Pierce took out the military personnel and guns on November 8th. 
After the withdrawal, Major Meredith compared the emus to Zulus and commented on the striking maneuverability of the emus, even while badly hurt. The second try came after the army retreated. The emus continued to attack the crops. Farmers again asked for support, citing the hot weather and drought that brought emus invading farms in the thousands. James Mitchell, the premier of Western Australia, lent his strong support to renewal of the military assistance. At the same time, a report from the base commander was issued that indicated 300 emus had been killed in the initial operation. On November 12th, the Minister of Defense started the war again because of the settlers' request and the base commander's report. He explained the decision to the Senate. He said they needed soldiers to fight the serious agricultural threat from the big emu population. The army had agreed to lend the guns to the Western Australian government, and the army expected people from the Western Australian government would use the guns. But there were not enough experienced machine gunners in the state, so Meredith was sent to fight again. Taking to the field on November 13, 1932, the military were successful during the first two days. They killed about 40 of the invading emus, and on the third day, November 15th, it was less successful. By December 2nd, the soldiers were killing about 100 emus per week. Meredith was recalled on December 10th, and in his report he claimed 986 kills with 9,860 rounds used. (laughs) So they had about a 10% success rate there. In addition, Meredith claimed 2,500 wounded birds had died as a result of the injuries that they had sustained, and in In judging the success of the cull, an article in the... Oh, I'm going to so butcher that. It's a magazine. Let's say that. On August 23rd, 1935, reported that although the use of machine guns had been criticized in many quarters, the method proved effective and saved what remained of the wheat. After the war, so after 1930, people built fences to keep the emus out of farms. Why would we think of that before? <laughs> before we went to war twice with the emus. The fact that we f- they fucking went to war in the first place. You're literally fighting a bird. A smart ass bird. <laughs> Did you catch the part where they came together? <laughs> and had leaders? <laughs> and watchdogs? It's the fact that they gathered their army and, like, had legit conversations. Like, we have to start a war! (laughs) This was a legitimate concern of the Senate. (laughs) Meanwhile, here in America right now, we are still discussing women's rights. I would much rather be up against some emus right now. (laughs) Right. But it is what it is. So that is my last call for today. That's the funny story from Australia. I hope you enjoyed the story of the great war of the emus. They lost it twice. Twice. Twice, man. And then they finally built fences. Like, who would (laughs) have thunk it? And then, you know, the fences also keep out the rabbits and the dingoes and the kangaroos and, you know, all that other crazy-ass wildlife you got out there in Australia. I don't even want to think about it because I want to visit y'all in Australia. And if I think about all the crazy shit you got there, I'm not coming. Don't worry. My sister and her husband will just tell us all the stuff that's going to kill us. I'm not going with you. (laughs) I'm not going with you because then I have to see your sister. No, thank you. No, no. I would rather be ignorant. 
and careful. Well, Jenny tries to sell you on the good stuff. It's Marcus that will be like, well, yeah, but you got to be careful of this. And, oh, if you're going to go swim here, make sure uh, it's a beach with, like, shark nets. What? What? See, if I talk to him, I'm literally not leaving the apartment, (laughs) the house, whatever, the hotel room. It doesn't matter. I will show up and I will Netflix and chill from whatever couch you have available for me. So they have a dog. You can play with the dog. Netflix and chill with the dog. Sounds great. (laughs) I can do that here with two dogs. Right. (laughs) But thanks for taking us to Australia today, to the great outback. Right. (laughs) (laughs) uh you can catch us on our social medias we have them all facebook tiktok instagram twitter they're all tequila she wrote across the board we also have our email if you have any case suggestions any last calls cocktails liquor wine beer anything like that tequila she wrote at gmail.com we also have our patreon set up and that is also tequila she wrote the easiest way to find that is by either going through our link tree and you'll get a direct link to it or you can go patreon.com backslash tequila she wrote should bring you right to our page for as little as two dollars a month you'll get ad free episodes and you'll get a bonus episode and then we have some bonus tiers and you'll get like haunted episodes ruining paradise stuff like that and there's a little bit of merch and everything. Patreon is still like a work in progress. So if there's something on there that you think we should do, just let us know. We're open to suggestions. But definitely check us out wherever you want. Give us feedback. We're all here for it. Please make it nice. We're still in the learning <laughs> process. <laughs> still getting comfortable with this. But with that being said, I guess we'll catch you next week. Thanks for riding on the Hot Mess Express. Toot toot. Beep beep.